Welcome back, all of you gorgeous people, to Spicier Than Therapy, the podcast where we discuss polyamory, ethical non-monogamy, communication, neurodiversity, kink, and all of the wonderful things that we think go into making a healthy, loving relationship. And welcome to part two of our interview with Heidi Savelle on the topic of polyamory. We had so much fun doing last week's episode, got into a lot of really, really great discussions, and we are so excited to have Heidi back with us. She is a therapist and a coach that deals with polyamory and ethical non-monogamy, and she had some great, great discussions uh, and in-depth answers for us last week. Yeah, definitely. It was a lot of fun. And this week, we're going to be getting into some even deeper kind of stuff, specifically about maybe the end of non-monogamous relationships. But before we get into that, we do want to add a couple of quick disclaimers. First and foremost, all of our advice given today is specifically not medical advice. Do not replace this for medical advice. We are specifically only saying these per our opinions, our thoughts, our expertise, anecdotes, however you want to say it. This is not a replacement for medical professional advice. So if you would like to see a medical professional or want to um, get with Heidi about, you know, some therapists that she knows that could help you out in your ethically non-monogamous relationships, you can check her out at her website. We'll make sure that that and some other resources are listed for you below. And a second, this is not Poly 101. We are not going to be discussing uh, the beginner-friendly version of non-monogamy. If you want that information, please feel free to check out our earlier podcast episodes where we kind of go over that, some of the, you know, dictionary terms you need to know and sort of the beginner-friendly. This is more in-depth. This is for those of you who have been in this for a while or who really are getting invested into this. Uh, this is not the waiting pool kids well welcome back hattie we are very very happy to have you back on the show jumping into it again a little bit more in depth with us i'm loving talking to you too so i'm happy to keep on digging deeper here lovely 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 so we covered so many things in the first episode if you haven't listened to that go back and listen to that first and we're going to jump right back into it in episode two of this series one of the things that we get a lot both on our Discord server um, and within the TikTok comments section and everything, and even people that send us emails, um, is about monogamous people that are seeking to fix their relationship or open their relationship up to polyamory or some form of ethical non-monogamy. How common is it for you to see these types of relationships exploring ethically non-monogamous relationships? Yeah, I think um, just anecdotally, I do see a lot of folks who are exploring um, non-monogamy as a way to try to um, fix or heal uh, a relationship, particularly sometimes like after an affair or um, if, you know, there's tensions or, or things that aren't working. And I always feel very hesitant when I see that. Yeah, we're very, just like, just to clarify, we're very anti all of that. Like we, 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 I've made it very clear in the past episodes about my uh, thoughts and opinions on the unicorn chasers as a means of like saving or spicing up a relationship in that way. 
What I will say about it is like, um, I have seen folks enter that way and do a lot of personal growth and a lot of exploration and, you know, potentially really decide that polyamory is for them. It doesn't save the relationship, but it may save the individuals in some ways after, you know, if, if they are going to open the relationship and, and date other people and realize, oh, this is really for me. Like that may actually work out for them. However, a lot of people can get harmed along the way. So I, I tend to really be um, very hesitant. I have a lot of questions and a healthy dose of skepticism when, when folks come to me from that place. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so then on that note, though, do you see a lot of people um, sort of do the reverse where they're already in a non-monogamous relationship and then they use monogamy to fix it? And, you know, again, anecdotally, do you see that sort of like help or hinder? Like what's what's been your I mean, obviously, you can't go into details, but like what's been kind of your overall um, experience and assessment of relationships like that? I think that can be really risky. Um, I I see folks do this. And generally what I see is it's usually one person out of the two who is wanting to close it back down. Um, and the reason that I say that it's risky is because um, if that is true, if one person is wanting to close it back down, um, generally that is a recipe for a lot of resentment from the person who is not wanting that. Also, um, I do not, from my own experience, I have not seen closing down temporarily to actually fix the issues around jealousy or dysregulation or um, anxious attachment stuff. I, I see it either um, plateau and stay the same or actually get worse if they pause for monogamy and then and then come back into it. That's not to say that it doesn't ever work for anyone. I'm sure there are people out there for whom it has worked for, but those are those are the things that I tend to see with with folks who who do that. Absolutely. Not saying it can't work. It's probably just really rare. The the couples that I've seen or the polycules that I've seen that have closed the relationship, it's generally like you said, done out of um, you know, a place of fear or a place of jealousy. And it's weird to me to see people that have had a history of going from that scarcity mindset to that mindset of abundance within their relationships and the way they practice non-monogamy almost kind of backslide. Um, and, and I see it more with the people that do have an anxious attachment style that are trying to work through it, but I've never seen it done successfully. I've never seen anyone close a relationship and then have that be a stable, healthy relationship, which then can open back up. It stays closed or it dissolves altogether, just from what I've seen. Yeah. And I, I think that harm can be done in the closing too, because um, often one or both people have other relationships that they're then having to cut off prematurely. Um, and that can cause a lot of heartbreak and resentment all around. And the person who wanted to close it may, the, the other person may be closing it under duress, which again is not a recipe for for a healthy relationship moving forward. Yeah, exactly. We, I know we've talked about before, we, we have a sort of like veto power in our relationship, but like as a general rule for most people, especially beginners, we tend to approach like veto powers with a very healthy dose of skepticism. Um, because even though 
we have a form for us in our relationship that works well for us in our relationship. Um, veto powers can, in a lot of other uh, situations, be a very toxic and unhealthy and just plain out weaponized kind of system. Um, particularly, you know, in the case of like where you have, you know, say a triad, right? Or even something like, um, you know, a couple who has a little, you know, they're, they're unicorn, right? The, there's a meta involved that maybe starts to not get along so well with a partner because they're noticing negative traits or they're noticing problematic behavior and they're trying to warn their partner that they care about. Like, cause I've seen that firsthand, you know, not from a relationship I was in, but like watched that happen with uh, a friend of mine many years ago where her boyfriend was very, um, not great. We'll say, uh, but her little side partner that was, you know, not serious, but serious enough that he started to notice these problematic behaviors and was trying to warn her. And it became this whole thing where the boyfriend forced her to cut off the other person. And then it just dissolved from there and it became a really harmful situation for her. And that unfortunately I feel like can be the case, you know, not a lot per se, but it is sort of like a red flag or an indicator for me that there's, there's other issues going on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. Cause I think, um, I have a video coming out on TikTok in a few days, I think on, um, veto power and, and I'm really careful in it to say like, I, you know, I'm not saying like, don't ever do this, but I'm saying, Hey, here are the ways this can be really harmful. You know, here are the things to consider. And it's again, where I'm walking that line of like, I'm not going to tell anyone, anyone what to do or not do, but I am going to share all of the ways I find those dynamics to be harmful and how I have seen them be carried out in ways that harm every, all the players. Absolutely. I, I am not a fan of, you know, polycules or poly relationships that have some sort of veto power and even our own, it's not veto power in the traditional sense that we would be talking about it. It's more like care and concern for the health and safety and the mental well-being of our partner, not straight out, I don't like this person going to know. But yeah, we, we actually warn people a lot about that. Not saying it can't work and not saying it doesn't work for your particular dynamic, whoever you are out there. But there are some very real, sketchy, controlling aspects around veto power that I don't love. And I think it's because we're such, both of us are such big fans of autonomy and the willingness of every person in a relationship or in a polycule to be adults and make their own decisions and have their own relationships and express love and affection in the way that they see fit without constraints of, you know, a monogamous structural system or feedback from their other partner. Yeah. And I think um, something that you said reminded me of, of another piece that I really like to focus on when talking about polyamory, which is this idea that provided that it is um, a healthy dynamic and that no one is being harmed or abused, I think what we could all benefit more from when it comes to polyamory is turning our focus internally instead of externally and looking to, you know, find be curious about what's happening internally and seeing what we need internally. And, and veto power is really about going external. It's about saying something makes me uncomfortable. I am looking externally to fix it. That person over there, they need to go instead of looking inward and being like, huh, what's coming up for me? What do I need to do? What might I be needing? What changes might I need to make for myself? What boundaries might I need to set up?
Right. And again, like, you know, uh, like to, to clarify too, like, that's also not to say that you can't take a pause if you need to and talk to your partners and the people involved in the relationships and say, hey, we need to kind of, you know, take a break or slow things down or what have you. That's not necessarily like a veto power. But, you know, if, say, Tyr had a relationship with somebody that I was kind of feeling a little sketch toward, there's absolutely nothing wrong, at least in my opinion, with like me pulling Tyr aside and going, hey, I'm feeling some kind of way about this. Can we like slow things down and have a conversation between us and this other person to sort of sort things out, see where it's going and figure out how we want to navigate this situation in the future and get it to where we want it to be. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you're also including the other person and it's not like behind closed doors and like, oh, sorry, bye. It's like, hey, here's what we're doing. Here's what's happening. Like, you're welcome to give your feedback and thoughts on this too. And we're going to be transparent with you about like this, you know, this pause. Oh, well, yeah. Cause they're part of the relationship too. Exactly. Yeah. And I actually, um, gosh, this was probably like seven years ago now. Um, I was going through a divorce and had a, a partner who was rapidly becoming very serious at the same time. And what we ended up doing is, you know, we, neither of us had other partners at the moment. And what we decided was because of all the turmoil happening, we were like, Hey, why don't we pause on adding new partners? Let's, you know, stabilize things and let's check in in like another three months and see how we're feeling about that. But it wasn't, had either of us had other partners, it wouldn't have been like, you got to stop seeing them. And we were explicit around like no new partners, like let's, you know, really pause here. And so that we don't do harm to other people and that we can stabilize our dynamic and be responsible about this. Right. And that's a really healthy way to kind of, you know, touching back on what we were talking about, where you use like the opposite monogamy, non-monogamy, you know, like, uh, as a way to help your relationship. Like there's a difference between trying to fix your relationship with one or the other and trying to bolster your relationship with the other. Like I am very much firmly of the mind that like monogamy, polyamory is not going to fix anything. It is not a fixing tool. It is a bolstering. It is an addition to, it is not going to do, you know, it's not a fix all solve all problem if you and your partner are having issues and you need to kind of lock things down, however you're, wherever you're at, whether you have no other partners or four other partners, however it is, if you need to kind of lock things down a little bit for a minute to, you know, sort of reestablish and bolster that relationship, then do so. And that's okay. Like you need to decide where your priorities are. And I feel like a lot of people have um, uh, struggles with doing that, like they may feel guilty, you know, if they're like, oh, I just started talking to so-and-so. Well, so-and-so is not who you're living with. They're not who you're raising a family with. And I, and I understand that their, their feelings and, uh, you know, their, their emotions and their commitments to this relationship absolutely should be taken into consideration and need to be addressed and acknowledged. But if they, that's when you have to kind of do that internal work of which is more important to me. And it sounds cold, but I feel like it's also very critical to maintaining you as an individual in addition to your other partners. Well, yeah. And I think that um, along that note of like thinking about you as an individual, like 
it it doesn't really matter if you have other partners, if you live with someone, if you're married, if you have kids, like if you're not available, you're not available. And like, it doesn't, it that's true regardless of your other things. Like thinking of you as an individual, like I was going through a divorce, I was not available for new relationships. And my partner was really spending a lot of time supporting me around this divorce I was going through. And that made them not really available for new relationships. And so, you know, I don't think there's anything unethical about, you know, let's say you're talking to someone new saying like, hey, I'm excited about you, I'm into you. I don't have the availability right now. That's where I am. Let's circle back in a little while. And that can happen in monogamy too. I don't think that's unique to polyamory, except for in the lack of availability, maybe due to partner dynamics. Oh, 100%. I mean, that's just a matter of like being conscientious of everybody, you know, it's um, to kind of, this might be a bad comparison, but it's what jumped in my head of like, you know, don't adopt a puppy if you don't have time for a puppy, you know, like don't adopt a new relationship if you don't have time to invest in this new relationship, you know, focus on you because your relationship with yourself is the most important one. And if you are lacking in that, everything else is going to suffer. Yeah. And and similarly, you know, people are like, well, is it ethical for me to date if like I spend so much time in, in my relationship that I, you know, have a family and kids with and all that, that I only have like one day a week to see someone. And it's like, sure, that's fine. That's your availability. Like that's, you know, it, it's not it's not unethical to be transparent with folks about what you are available for. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to invest more time in one place than another. We don't have to be, we're not like equal opportunity employers here. Like we can be discerning and we don't have to treat everyone. We have to treat everyone kindly and with care and compassion, but we don't have to give everyone equal amounts of our time. Exactly. Like I know that was something I really struggled, struggled with for a long time was like, not everybody, this is what I get for being raised by a grandmother from Minnesota. Not everybody is entitled to my, to the same level of time, energy, and even kindness. Let's be real. You know, like I am very much a person. I will weaponize being petty if that's what is going to help me survive this scenario. And I enjoy it. I live for it. But also like I default to kindness just as a general rule. So like if I have a partner that's encroaching on that, I have no problem with like cutting them at the knees if I need to, if that's what it takes to establish that boundary in a way they understand. I don't want it to get to that point, but there it is. And to Heidi's point, I mean, as long as the people involved are having that transparent conversation yes. ahead of time, if you are going to be establishing a new relationship and you only have so much availability and you're only looking for X, as long as everybody knows that uh, ahead of time and agrees to that, you're fine. Like we did a, a video series on TikTok few months ago about, you know, me being in relationships with multiple people early last year, and then some of them not getting along because they felt that they weren't getting equal time and having to have those conversations with them saying, look, look, here's how we set up our relationship. Here is what we all agreed to. A, if you want to go back and modify that, or if you need something else, if, if, you know, you have needs that aren't being met, absolutely. Let's talk about that. But to be also jealous of another relationship within the polycule, because you don't feel it's meeting those needs and then going about that in a weird way is not the move. It's not the move. <laughs> Right. And like, you know, it's one thing to be jealous, like, sure, you may have agreed to something. And then when you see someone like, you know, give, giving someone else more attention, it's fine to be jealous. How do you respond to that jealousy? How do you act on that jealousy? Do you blame? Do you accuse? Do you manipulate? Or do you say, hey, I know I agreed to this, but I'm struggling. Can we talk about it? 
Oh yeah, 100%. I mean, this is something that Tyr and I harp on is, you know, the the notion that like, especially, I feel like especially within poly relationships, but in general, your reactions to your feelings are not someone else's responsibility. You have the responsibility to communicate your needs, your expectations, your feelings, and to react upon those in a way that is healthy, compassionate, and considerate of others. And if you mess up along the line somewhere, that's okay. You know, going back to last week's episode, as long as you take ownership and, you know, work to make amends, if you will, and correct the problem in the future, you know, you you have to be responsible. I feel, again, particularly if you're trying to get into non-monogamy. Yeah. And, and further to Tier's point, like no one is entitled to my time. No one. It doesn't matter. Like if I'm married to someone, like no one is entitled to my time. And so it's really, you know, important that folks in my life, they can say, Hey, I, I feel like I'm needing more from you, or I'm, you know, I'm feeling a little lonely, or I'd really like to spend more time with you. But if someone comes to me from a place of like, Hey, I deserve more. It's like, Whoa, Whoa. Like that's, you know, so I think part of, I guess my, my rambly point here is that it's all in how it's presented too. like needs are fine. We all have needs and sometimes our needs aren't being met and that's valid and that's worth discussing and seeing if there's a solution. But when we go into blaming or accusing, not only is that problematic, but we're not going to get what we want. It's not an effective way to go to a partner with a need. Absolutely. And it actually created problems in my relationship because the way that person approached they didn't approach me they approached the other person they approached yeah. the meta and i'm like excuse me this is not how we operate like i shouldn't be hearing about this third hand from the other partner who just got an earful from this partner that is an unhealthy way to practice and it leads me to my next question for you heidi how do you deal with metas that don't get along for whatever reason what do you suggest so several different things. I think it really depends on the scenario. Um, I will often um, suggest going back to what we talked about in the last episode around the idea of triangulation, making sure that communication is happening directly because Tyr, as you mentioned, like it's it sucks to not hear about something directly or to feel like someone else is getting pulled into the conflict. That, that causes um, more problems than it solves. So I think talking directly when you can and if you have tried talking directly and it's like, look, I just don't like this person. I don't get along with this person. Then setting up boundaries. I mean, I have had um, my partner date people who I didn't care for. And and it was it was okay for me. It was like, I don't want to spend time with this person. Like, of course, if you have an event that's important to you, like a graduation or a birthday or something like that, like, sure, they can come. I'm not like excommunicating them from your life. But like, I'm not going to go out of my way to like, be around this person. And I might set up boundaries around how much I want to hear about them, especially if it's them treating you some kind of way that I don't like. I might be like, hey, that sounds really tough. I think I'm reaching my limit of how much I want to hear about this. Hearing about it more is just going to cause me anger and resentment. And I'm not sure that's so helpful. So really being able to set up boundaries around contact, around um, how much you're hearing about it or how much you're dealing with them in a way that is, you know, respectful and not like, restricting another person's access. 
Right, because it's all about that autonomy, that relationship's autonomy, if that's the way it's structured. And like you said, you're not trying to like set boundaries of what they can and cannot do with their relationship. You're just setting personal boundaries to make sure that you are protecting your own mental space and your own autonomy. And that's great. And in that particular example that kind of we're going over from my life, um, it ended really poorly. Uh, this person could not actually come back and have a healthy, positive communication with me or with that other person, especially once those boundaries were established. And I ended up having to end that poly relationship. So ending poly relationships, kind of going back into that, what's a healthy way to do that? What are some ways to recognize that this isn't working for you or your partners? And how do you go about ending a polyamorous relationship? I love that. I mean, I think there's way there are ways in which it is similar to monogamous breakups and there are ways that it is very different. So the ways that it is similar, I think, um, are that, you know, are my needs being met? Do I feel respected by this person? Is the majority of our time together spent like connecting and engaging and doing, you know, pleasurable things? with the caveat that sure you might be going through a crisis where there's a lot of like arguing and conflict resolution but also looking is that a pattern how often is that happening and over the long term you know is this is this feeling like a healthy dynamic can we just enjoy ourselves or are we always mired down in conflict also things to look out for is this more of a caretaking thing is this a one-way relationship where energy is being put one direction and not both directions um, is this person causing a lot of conflict in my life in the other areas? Um, you know, and, and I think it, it's such a deeply personal, um, decision when that, that tips into, okay, this is too much. Um, but I think asking those questions, reflecting on that and, and some of the ways where it's different in polyamory is it's like, you may have more things competing for your time, right? And it's like, is the time that I'm investing in it worth it still? And is this time time I'd rather be spending elsewhere? Is this relationship continuing to feed me? Right. So like on that note then, like what would you say are some, you know, I mean, like we mentioned earlier, you guys, this is not poly 101. So like what would you say are some more um, like in-depth, like you've been in the relationship for a minute, everything's going fine for a while, but then, you know, what sort of like red flags would you look for or advise people to look for once you're like in the thick of the relationship as far as like, hey, maybe this isn't working out the best way we thought it would. Yeah, so I think, um, is there, oh, let's see, I'm trying to think of some of the things that I've seen that have ended up being problematic. I think a lot of controlling behavior um, is something that, you know, is true in monogamous relationships too, but I think it can really manifest in very particular ways in polyamory, um, controlling other relationships, um, blaming, putting responsibility for their feelings on you. I think that's a big red flag for me. Are they taking responsibility for their own feelings or are they putting those feelings on you? Um, is there a certain level of self-awareness? Are they stirring up conflict in those other relationships? Um, those, those I think are some of the major red flags that, that feel in some ways unique to polyamory. I'm sure there's like a million more that I'm not thinking of in this exact moment. 
we'll remember it in like five minutes or after we've stopped recording. That's always the way it goes with us on our podcast. Yeah. We're like, ah, shit, I should have made this point. But another thing that I think um, is unique to polyamory relationships is like the ways in which people break up because it's less of a binary sometimes than it is a monogamy because a monogamy it's like well i can only have one partner so if it's not you we're done bye i gotta find someone else whereas it's world shattering yeah yes yes whereas in polyamory like there are many different ways to de-escalate i mean i've seen folks who like are like hey we had a primary type setup we are no longer working in that way let's de-escalate but stay in each other's lives maybe you know i've seen people move out from living together but still stay together or, you know, go from spending lots of time together to maybe once a month or once a week seeing each other as a way of like, we're going to de-escalate this, but we are still going to stay in each other's lives in some way, I be that romantic that. or sexual. I love that you're making that point because that's how I've seen comets happen in a lot of poly relationships. They're like, yep, we had a big thing and now it's just, hey, whenever I'm in town or whenever I see you. And, you know, it kind of goes back to the difference between, you know, a lot of the monogamous mindset of, you know, not being really close personal friends with some of these people, just having them be your all and your everything and not understanding that in polyamorous relationships, you're more than likely friends and uh, friends first and foremost, and then maybe it develops into something else. And uh, we always joke on all of our lives that we do on TikTok, like, you know, we, we date all of our friends. Like if they're not the type of friends that can come over, hang out on the couch, watch a movie snuggle and then occasionally let me spit in their mouth are they really my friends at all <laughs> yeah we have a very different relationship uh escalator than i've seen you talk about on your tiktoks and i wanted to quickly because you you were talking about de-escalating earlier and it may, reminded me you have a really wonderful series on like relationship escalators and you know to kind of like what tier mentioned earlier where in like a traditional monogamy relationship you're sort of friends first and then you go on and you da 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 so how would you, you know, in a healthy, idealized, you know, sunshine and rainbows and butterflies or surrounding the situation, what would you say is sort of like um, your best case scenario relationship de-escalator for a, a, a non-monogamous relationship? Hmm, that's such an interesting question. Um, you know, I think that it would be those two people coming together, realizing that the current situation isn't working for them. And then really negotiating what would work. You know, maybe they want to take sexual contact off the table. Maybe they want to leave that on the table, but they want to reduce the amount of time they're seeing each other. Or maybe they want to take a total break for a while. I've seen that happen. And I think that can make sense sometimes to like say, you know, let's have a cooling off period or hard reset and then come back together and see what makes sense for us. So I, I think um, I'm hesitant to give like one ideal blueprint, but I think if there is an ideal blueprint, it's both of those people coming together, acknowledging that a de-escalation has to happen and then negotiating together what that might look like. Oh, well, yeah, of course. I mean, everybody, every relationship is different, you know, like we've said it before. And I, I just kind of wanted to see like, as like a general rule, if there was one, because, you know, we love painting with broad strokes around here until we don't. You know, I just want to say that if, you know, Friends, the TV show, if Ross and Rachel were polyamorous, that whole we were on a break episode never would have been a thing. Never would have been a thing. So I love that you're like, that's where my, if, yeah, if Ross wouldn't have been a piece of shit, that would have been a thing too. Um, it was super unhealthy, but like your whole, maybe they take a break. My mind instantly went back to friends. Totally. I love that. 
So I think all of this really kind of, you know, is a good segue uh, for me just because I have a question that I know um, I've personally struggled with and I know other people have in the past, you know, yay, anxious attachment styles um, of that imposter syndrome kicking, kicking in, you know, like I mentioned earlier, Tyr and I joke all the time about, you know, being accidentally monogamous. Um, so what would you say about somebody, um, within the, the poly non-monogamous crowd who kind of in our, you know, like in our situation where they are, you know, just happen to be in a monogamous relationship because of, you know, uh, situation, right. Not necessarily intent. So, you know, who are, who are struggling with the idea of like, am I poly enough? Cause good Lord, have I been there? Yes. This is such a good question. So I think this comes up a lot for folks in my group, like, am I poly enough? And in terms of that, I think what I like to come back to is that polyamory is not necessarily um, a descriptor of your current relationship status. It is a choice about how you engage in relationships. And I've had times, I mean, God, during the pandemic, I've had like, you know, I think a two year stretch where I just had one partner and my one partner just had me. And at no point during that was I like, oh, I'm no longer polyamorous. It was like, we are in lockdown in the middle of a pandemic. We are not going to be adding partners. Like this is, so what I refer, I don't know if this makes sense or not, like linguistically, but I always refer to it as like functionally monogamous. Like we are monogamous in terms of like what we're doing right now, but we, we are polyamorous in that we are open to other loves. We are ready for other loves. Well, not ready in the moment, but like, you know, it's, it's still our intention and the way that we live our lives, even if that's all we got in the moment. Right. That reminds me like, uh, when Tier and I were first talking about like names for our podcast, one of the ones that came up that we were really dancing with was practically poly, um, because of like, the multiple implications behind the word practically, right? Like, even though we're not actually, you know, in this moment right now, we we aren't, you know, actively non-monogamous, we're also not no. actively, you know, like we're we're not we're not trying to avoid it. So it was one of those that we were kind of like tongue-in-cheek joke of like, we're almost we're we're we're, we're kind of there, but not. I love that you say that as we're actively getting ready to go to a swinger room later tonight. We're not actively non-monogamous. I don't know that that's true. But we both already talked about the fact that we're going with the caveat of like, we're not intending for anything to happen, but if it is, we're open to it. You know, we're just like, meh, let's see what happens. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, and it's just so funny too, because you think about like, I think that's true for my partner and I too, where it's like, we're like, yeah, we're functionally monogamous. But if a monogamous couple looked at us, they would be like, no, you're not. What? No, that's not what monogamy looks like. But when we say it, what we mean is like, neither of us have other partners at the moment that are like, you know, a regular relationship partner thing. Right. Like we're not intentionally monogamous. It just sort of like happens. It's like a uh, functional monogamous. Right. That's cute. I'm gonna have to remember that. But like, I mean, that like, you know, side, you know, quick little sidebar story time. Like that kind of uh, brings me back to like a conversation that Tier and I had in the kitchen the other day where, God, I don't remember what made me think of it, but we were talking about like kink, right? And the levels of kink. And I made a joke about how, you know, like, I don't know, I'm so vanilla, da, 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 da. And Tier looks at me, he's like, you're what? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty vanilla. And he goes, honey, 
no, you're not. And I like had to stop. And I'm like, no, I definitely am. And he was like, honey, vanilla people would be scared of you. And, and then I remember that I have vanilla friends that are. And, you know, it's just sort of that like same kind of mindset of like, uh, I guess I guess I am. I don't know. There are levels to this shit, twin. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Well, and the other thing I wanted to say around um, imposter syndrome is just that I see that working in the other way, too, where people are like, well, I'm not polyamorous until I'm dating lots of people. And so, like, go out, like, on this frenzy of, like, I need to find more partners so I can be really polyamorous. And, like, I, ugh, I don't, you know, I really caution people against that because, A, like, more partners isn't going to make you more polyamorous doing your work learning from the community, being in polyamorous community is going to help you be more polyamorous, but the collection of partners is not actually what makes you more polyamorous. Right? This isn't a competition with others, with your other partners, or even within yourself. I mean, this is, it's not that. I love that point. Right. It's, you know, going back to like our shout out to our, uh, shout out. I'm the one doing the shout out this time, <laughs> you know, going back to like our earlier episodes is Holly isn't pie. There's there's plenty for everybody. And more importantly, humans are not beanie babies. We are not meant to be collected and stored in a case. Though we do accrue value over time, I think. Unlike beanie babies, I guess. Hopefully. <laughs> um, there's one other thing. Only I the special say. editions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to use myself in, as an example, which I know I already have, but like I've gone sometimes year-long stretches where I haven't had another partner and you know I, my current partner and I we've been together almost eight years and like there have been stretches where they've had other partners and I haven't I've had other partners and they haven't and like that's I'm I'm very secure in my polyamory identity that I don't need multiple partners to know I'm polyamorous it's like this is something about me that I know that I believe that I practice occasionally but I don't need to have multiple partners in order to be polyamorous right? It's just a part of your identity. It's not your whole identity. So I love that answer. And it, and it kind of leads us into one of the harder questions that we get. This one, we don't get as much as some of the beginner level stuff, but we do have some other ethically monogamous. We do have some other ethically non-monogamous folks in our discord. They're always talking about very complex issues. And one is around raising children in polyamorous relationships. Now, specific to the one that's asking the question, they're involved in a quad. So all of them are living in the same household. So it's a little bit different than others. And so their you know situation is very unique they're all able to co-parent as a quad um but you know how do you see uh child raising and child rearing in polyamorous relationships um and in ethically non-monogamous relationships how do, how do you see that working how do you see them communicating to their children about what it means to be polyamorous yeah i think um i mean i will very happily self-disclose here. I do not myself have children, so I can talk about um, what I've seen other folks do. I can also refer people to some folks that I consider to be kind of the lead voices in, in the field. Um, so one of those is Dr. Elizabeth Sheff. Um, she has, she's done a lot of studies um, of polyamorous families. Um, she's got a couple books. So she has a longitudinal study where she's following kids as they grow up in polyamorous families. I think her study is about 20 years long now. 
Um, one of her books is called The Polyamorous Next Door. There's a few other ones too. And they, some of them are more like um, narrative and following like actual stories. Some of them more talk about her findings, but um, she's also got some articles up through Psychology Today where she talks about it. She's a great resource, highly recommend her, love her. Um, but what, through the work I've seen her do and my experience working with folks, I think if the adults are doing it healthily, then the kids are in good shape. I mean, kids don't really care about those kinds of like complexities of like who's sleeping with who or like, A, they don't need to know about that because like who talks to their kids about like the sex they're having, you know, like most people don't do that. And B, like they just want to know that they're loved. They want people to pay attention to them, to engage with them. It's the adults that get so tripped up about like, whoa, what's happening in your family? And like when kids talked to Elizabeth Chef, what they would tell her is like, I'm cool with it. What I'm not cool with is like the shit that other parents say to me or like the intrusive and invasive questions that I get from my friend's parents about this. And and often, you know, it's like there are there's more um there's more emotional bandwidth for the kids when there's more parents in in the situation. Yeah, no, I know um I don't mind talking about this cuz you know, he mini peaks and I have talked extensively about this, but like one of the things that Tyr and I talked about early on in our relationship was the fact that like mini peaks actually at you know, a very he's a he's a preteen already has a girlfriend, you know, back in Memphis. And they talk all the time about, hey, and, and they're dating, they'll tell you they're dating, but they always talk about like, hey, um, I'm thinking about dating and going out and having this person be my boyfriend for a little bit. Are you okay with that? How do you feel? Like in middle school, they're doing this and having this relationship. And I remember the first time it came up was he had gone over to her house to hang out and play and the two of them hang went and you know went to the playground hang out with some other kids and there was this other boy there that was getting a little handsy with his girlfriend and there was a little tricornal uh friend that decided to go up to mini peaks and be like oh didn't you know they're dating didn't she already break up with you and cool as a cucumber he was like uh no i told her it was okay had no idea what was going on, but he was just like instantly right there for her. And then he had me come pick her, pick him up from there afterward. And, you know, he and I were talking about it. And of course he was devastated, but I still remember, you know, it really stuck with me that he told me, he was like, I'm not upset that she has this other person she's interested in. I'm more upset she didn't tell me. And I was just so like as a mom, I was so proud, you know, especially as a non-monogamous mom, I was so proud of him in that moment that he had that bandwidth and that maturity there around that. That was just like, you know, that was the whole point of me telling this story was because I'm proud of my baby. Um, but it was just, it, you know, like, and, and I tell him this all the time is already he has a better relationship or an idea and a mindset around relationships, you know, especially for his age than a lot of adults I know. Um, and I, I very much consider that in part to be because of the fact that I've always been very open with him, you know, again, to your point, not about what I'm doing, but sort of like 
the the how uh, I'm navigating the situations. And, and I feel like if we could destigmatize that and having those conversations with kids, I mean, mine's proof that, I mean, obviously every child is different. Every family and relationship is different and you have to teach different lessons, but kids understand if you take the time to sit and talk with them about it. Yeah. I, I think um, that's so true. And also that like this whole idea of like mononormativity and compulsory monogamy is something that we are taught over the course of our lifetimes. And it gets more and more rigid as we get older. And so like kids don't have the same hangups necessarily that adults have. And so if it's like, yeah, mom has like these two special friends and they both live here. And like, we both, all three of us love you very much. The kid's just going to be like, okay, cool. That's awesome. Like more people to play with. And, and so they're, they're less hung up on that kind of thing. And to your point with, with your kiddo, what um, Dr. Chef is finding is that as these kids go to college or leave their family homes, they are um, more adept at navigating relationships and communicating than their peers who are raised in monogamous families for the very reasons I think you're describing. Right. Like, I mean, it's something that I feel like a lot of people don't you know, they usually apply to like the the idea of like step parents and stuff, but like no child is going to suffer because more people love them ever, full stop, you know? And yeah. are showing them care and compassion and taking them to the park and spending time with them. And, and I feel like that's, you know, in, in the questions we've gotten in TikTok lives before, that's the easiest way to explain that to kids who, you know, haven't been browbeaten by all of the Disney movies yet about, you know, you find your one true love and then everything, everybody lives happily ever after is that, you know, you're able to love your mom and your dad at the same time and your sister and your brother and your pets you're able to express love and affection to more than one person at one time. This is that. That's literally the example that I use all the time. I'm able to express my feelings of love to everybody all at the same time and have those and have each one of those be valid. Each one of those is a real feeling of love and affection. Yeah, it's palpable. And at the end of the day, like, that's not that hard for kids to understand. I think that's like very simple for kids to understand, you know, and it's like, in some ways, no different than like a blended family, right, where you've got like a bunch of extended relatives or, you know, step folks, like also living in the house, like, it's not like, you know, when, like in a monogamous family that like, mom and dad wake up in the morning and are like, son, we had really great sex last night and we'd like to tell you the details of it. Like that doesn't happen. And so like, you know, it's not like that's going to happen in polyamorous families either. It's just no. like, cool. Like sometimes these people like might, you know, sleep over, have sleepovers in each other's bedrooms. And like, that's cool. And I know where to find them if I have a nightmare in the night. And like beyond that, like who cares? It's just a bunch of people who are a family and are loving each other. Yeah. Absolutely. I just, as a side note, I want them to redo the Brady Bunch, but with like a quad and like six kids and just have it be like one big, you know, rom-com type thing. That would be a good show. I'd watch that show. That's brilliant. Okay. So you mentioned Dr. Elizabeth Chef, and I've already been looking them up while we've been talking. I love that. Thank you. What are some other books that you love that cover the topic of polyamory or ethical non-monogamy? or just anything, you know, kind of in that same orbit? So um, one book that I love, which it's dated, you know, it's old, it comes with caveats, but I love The Ethical Slut. I think that the folks who wrote that book are like the grandparents of, you know, um, ethical non-monogamy. And I think that, 
you know, it's a classic. I think it's great. It's so worth a read. And I, you know, I wish everyone would give that a read, you know, recognizing that in some ways it's it's old, but but it still has so many really great, lovely concepts. And I just love the the two folks who wrote it too. Oh yeah, that is definitely a uh, product of its time, but it's still worth the read if you take it, you know, just like a good movie from the 90s. Like, oh yeah, this is probably very problematic, but it still gives me the feel goods. Yeah, yeah. And I think some of their points really still hold true and hold up. And, and it's just a nice um, primer or introduction into the idea of departing from compulsory monogamy. Another book that um, can that that I think some people might appreciate is one called Designer Relationships. And that one really, um, I can't remember the author, um, but that one really talks about just bringing intentionality into your relationship. And it's like, whether you choose monogamy, whether you choose swinging, whether you choose polyamory or anything in between, like really being like, let's let's build our own thing. Let's discard whatever the default is and jointly decide what we want to do, what makes sense for us and like pick and choose the components that, that we want. Love that. I'm adding all of these books to our shopping cart as Heidi's saying. That. <laughs> There's another book that has nothing to do with polyamory and, um, some people may find somewhat off-putting, but I absolutely love. It's a Pima Chodron book. So she is Buddhist. And so if, you know, for folks who have like struggles around like religiosity, there is there are some Buddhist principles that are introduced in it. However, um, her work and particularly there's two books that I love. Um, one is called The Places That Scare You. And the other one is called, I think, When Things Fall Apart, um, are about... Her books are really about exploring how to self-soothe, how to find equanimity within ourselves, how to sit with uncomfortable feelings and sit with discomfort. And these books, I have like dog-eared copies that when I was first, you know, leaning into polyamory were so helpful to me. And I recommend them to all of the folks I work with too. They have nothing to do with polyamory, but they're all about like learning to sit with discomfort because we live in a society where it's like discomfort is bad. Someone's doing something wrong. You immediately have to fix it. You have to annihilate it. You have to make it stop. And we don't really leave room for like, maybe I can sit with this. Maybe I can tolerate it. Maybe there's something to learn from this. Or maybe I can soothe myself instead of looking externally for what needs to change so I don't need to experience discomfort in this moment. Oh my gosh, yes. That was absolutely a critical part of my therapy with, again, shouting out Raisha Jag up in Memphis. Absolutely love her. If she can work with me, she can work with anybody, I promise. Um, that was one of the the more critical things. And, you know, like I mentioned, you know, either earlier today or last week's episode, I can't even remember now, um, you know, I initially went to see her for EMDR and that is why that is such a, in my opinion, such a critically important form of therapy is it forces you to sit in that discomfort and really analyze it and what it's causing, what it's, you know, the internal feelings and everything else. And that was why, you know, even when she and I, you know, stopped like the actual core part of EMDR and we're still just working, Oh man, the 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 number of days that she held my feet to the flames and was like, "No, you're going to sit with this and we're going to talk about it and you're going to dodge." It. And she was so good about um uh not letting me circumnavigate things. Um and that was one of the things that I I really truly loved and respected about her, you know. I mean, 
the first day I went in to talk to her, she was like, there are going to be days you're going to be very upset with me and you're not going to like me. And that's okay. That's my job. And I was like, done, salt, love you. Sign, sign me up now. Like, cause that's what I needed. Yeah, exactly. Take my money. Cause I knew that was the kind of work that I needed to do was that uncomfortable, icky, I don't like myself today, but it helps me like myself tomorrow kind of work. And I feel like not enough people are willing or even able or have the tools to do that kind of work. And it is so necessary. Yeah. When I was first getting started, I remember like reading these books and there were nights where I would just be like blinking tears, reading a same passage again and again, being like, oh my God, I've never just sat with my discomfort before. I've never just been like, maybe I don't need to fix anything in this moment. Maybe I just need to sit with this and tolerate it and see what I need to learn about myself through this, you know, instead of like, ah, fix it, make it stop, make it stop. Like sometimes we just feel discomfort. And if we go through life needing to shut it down every single time it happens, there's a lot we're going to avoid because there's a lot in life that causes discomfort and growth happens in a place of discomfort. And so it's such a critical skill for us to all learn how to do whether or not we explore polyamory. Right. Exactly. It's just, you know, I mean, to, to make it a more, you know, for those of you who might uh, benefit from this to make, to give you a, like a tangible explanation or example, it's just like when you get injured and you break a bone and you need to set it, it hurts like a sort of a bitch when they reset that bone, but that's the only way it's going to heal straight. Or if you have an infection or a cyst or something and they have to go in and lance it, it sucks. It's painful. And that's how you heal. Like that is part of the process and you just have to kind of muscle through it. I believe it's like culturally reinforced in our society to like you were saying, Heidi, either fix the problem immediately or avoid it altogether. You know, so few of us are able to kind of sit in that and analyze those feelings and just feel them. They're valid, even if they're overwhelming for the time. But we have such, you know, I, I almost wonder from a sociological standpoint, does our cultural norms of trying to avoid that create more anxious avoidant personality styles is that something that's reinforced when we're younger or learned behavior you know as we get older just i know it's not the the topic of this conversation but makes me curious yeah i think that's a great question i i wonder about that too and and just thinking about the skill of like tolerating discomfort like there are going to be things you do in polyamory that make you deeply uncomfortable sometimes like i remember the first time that my partner had a sleepover i was so uncomfortable and some people when that happens are like oh i'm uncomfortable therefore this is bad i shouldn't be doing it i you know like let's call it off instead of being like oh this is really uncomfortable. Okay. I can sit with this discomfort. I can be curious about it. I can give myself some kindness. I can breathe through the feeling of like, oh, I want to die and then get to a place of like, huh, why am I uncomfortable? What is this about? What's coming up for me? What are my fears? What are, where's my mind taking me that's leading to this kind of pain or discomfort in this moment? Right. That's, that's one of our, our something, again, something we say often is like our favorite question is why, why am I feeling like this? And, you know, I'm a very big advocate now because of therapy that like anytime you're feeling discomfort, sit and chew on that for a minute, explore it. And that's why cognitive behavioral therapy has been so helpful for me and for tear, um, because it forces you to stop and well, where is this coming from? Why am I feeling like this? What am I feeling? 
why do I really feel this way? Is this a surface thing that I'm feeling or am I actually upset and anxious about something that happened three weeks ago that's just been kind of stewing back here and now I'm being, you know, uh, micro-triggered, if you will, by this scenario? Because good Lord, has that happened to me a few hundred times in my life? Or is this just past trauma coming back to rear its head and I just need to identify that, see that it's that, know that that's valid and move through it. I mean, I do a lot of mentoring for people that are new to the BDSM and kink world and it's the same thing as twin said. We're constantly asking why until we can't ask why anymore. Getting to the root cause of why someone wants to be in the lifestyle or do a certain thing. And it's the same with discomfort. Just keep asking why until you run out of answers. And generally you're at the root of the issue there. And hopefully you can kind of move forward. Yeah. So, so in regard to that, um, I think there are layers to this and I, I actually have a um, free mini course that I offer if people go to my website where I break this down further, but, um, and the mini course is on um, managing jealousy, but I think you could say managing any kind of distress really is, is what it works for. And it's like the way I break it down is there, there are three layers to it. There is the layer of our dysregulation. So what's happening in our nervous system, what's happening in our body and like being able to regulate that. And then there's the feelings that are coming up, fear, anxiety, hurt, um, you know, whatever those feelings might be. And how do we learn to sit with the feelings? And, you know, that's where some of the Pima Chodron work can come in. And then the third piece is that cognitive piece. What are the stories I'm telling myself about this? What am I thinking about this? And are these thoughts realistic? Are they based on old stories, old fears, old experiences? And is there a more helpful way I can be thinking about this? So I think when we talk about distress, it can be helpful to kind of break it down into those three levels. Absolutely. I could not have said it. That Yes, yes, 100,000%. Yes, like all of it. Yes. Snaps, snaps, snaps. Um, but on that note, you guys, we are nearing our time. So, my love, I'll let you pick the speed round this week because I did get to do it last week. Thank you, my love. Appreciate that. So, this is something that we talk about, Twin and I, all the time, just because we like sharing funny stories that make us laugh. What is the funniest faux pas either you have done in your polyamory journey or that you've seen someone else do that you can share? I don't know if I I want to have one. I want to have a funny story. Um, 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 uh, I can pick a different one if you'd like. <laughs> I mean, it's such a good one. I'm like, I mean, I, I've fucked up a lot, but I don't know if any of them are very funny. Okay, um, then it can be cringe too. It can okay. be it can be fucked up and cringe. Okay, I think that um, it's maybe more cringe than it is funny, but I have, um, I've definitely made the assumption that folks were polyamorous when they were not. You know, I see like a group of folks. There was this one time I was in, I should have known, I was in um, Charleston. Is that North? South? South Carolina. South Carolina. Yeah, I was in Charleston, South Carolina. And there was these three folks. One was... Um, femme presenting and the other two were mask presenting and the femme presenting person was like looking at a purse and she was like really into like debating between the brown person and the blue person both of these folks she was with were like very supportive like very like um yeah mm, i think the brown goes better with your eyes oh but mm, you wear more blue and they were both so invested in 
helping her find the right purse. And they both, you know, seemed about the same age, same age as her. And um, I was like, oh, they've got to be polyamorous. These are her two partners. And they're like helping her get a purse. And I very much, okay, so this isn't, this was my partner saving me from cringe. I was like, I think they're polykill. I'm going to go ask them. And my partner's like, sweetie, think about where we are. No, don't do that. We're in South Carolina. Like, I assure you, that's probably not what it is. And I'm like, but I think it is. And I went so far as to like walk up to them. And my partner's like, no, no. And so, so I didn't. So actually it wasn't cringe. It was avoidance of cringe, but like, I really wanted to ask them. And to this day, I still think they were. I mean, I feel like they could have been because there are, you know, there are pockets of us everywhere, but I love that your partner saved you from that. Well, and also like Charleston is like a little, it's like a, a metro area. Yeah. 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 So it could have been, it totally could have been. Our, our uh, headcanon will be that they were the poly couple of Charleston, South Carolina, Carolina. (laughs) I like that. I've definitely, um, oh, here's, okay. Maybe you want to use this one instead. This one might be better since that one, (laughs) that one was so disappointing. I'm like, this is really cringy. Okay. It didn't actually happen. Um, okay. So not cringy, but definitely like one where, um, I confused people. My, uh, last year, my partner got asked out from someone that, um, they've been talking to on Instagram and it was like, they were going to all go on a date. It was going to be lovely. And so I was like helping my partner find the perfect date spot. And we were looking at different places and there's this place, um, that was like a speakeasy and it seemed really cool, but we're like, let's go scope it out. See if it's got like little nooks and crannies. So like we went there, we walked in, we're holding hands and I'm like, Ooh, sweetie, look at this spot. This could be a fun place to like have a little make out or like, Ooh. And we're like, where's the most romantic place here to sit. And they were like getting in just the people who work there were like, Ooh, we'll tell you where the hottest spot is. And like, yeah, if you really want to impress that, like all this stuff. And they're like, so are you two coming here? I'm like, Oh no, this is for a date for him. We're, we're just scoping it out. And they were just like, so like, Oh, okay. Very confused. I think we broke their brain. So oh I guess that's, God, I love that. that's not really a faux pas or necessarily cringy, but it was definitely, it was fun to see the look on their face. That is adorable. I love that. I've actually made a very similar mistake at, uh, uh taking two different paramours to the same speakeasy type place and forgetting which one I had been there with previously. Cause it was so recent and yeah, I felt I felt pretty bad, so I can I can sympathize with that one. All right. Well, on that note, y'all, <laughs> uh, Heidi, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining us for these past couple of weeks episodes. We have had uh, an absolute blast talking to you. You are in a genuine just joy. This has been amazing. And I actually want to join your class, so we're gonna have to talk about that after we finish filming this episode. I love Which- it. Which leads me to the question of what other projects, what other classes do you have going before we get out of here today? What kind of projects and classes can people look for from you and uh, what sort of um, coaching can they expect from you were they to join one of your classes? Yes, I love it. Okay, so a couple different things. As I mentioned, I have a free mini course that folks can sign up for on my website. It's like a five-day email series talking about how to cope with jealousy and 
relationship to stress in general. Um, and then I have my steadier polywobbles group program. It's eight weeks long. Each week we cover a different topic from unpacking monogamy mindset to, you know, cognitive distortions and learning to break those down, how to cope with distress, things like that. And we do week by week. Um, it's, a group setting. It's a live Zoom chat where we all get together. There's also um, a group chat that happens just throughout the week that people can participate in. Um, right now it's on Slack. I may move it somewhere else eventually. And then folks also have access to me individually. So they can send me emails or videos and I will send them back an individual email with like um, personalized coaching for whatever their issue is that's coming up. Um, I'm in the middle of a cohort right now. So the next cohort will be starting in early fall, probably late August, early September. Um, folks can get on the wait list for it now. And um, I also do individual and couples coaching. Those packages are available on my website. But as you can tell, the thing I'm most excited about is my Polly Wobbles group. Awesome. I love that. We love a busy bee around here. That's That's yes. so cool. I literally just put us on the wait list for the fall cohort <laughs> <laughs> just now, as you were saying it. So where can we find you? Okay. Everywhere around the interwebs. Yes, I make it pretty easy because I have the same name everywhere. So it's She Loves Radically. I'm at She Loves Radically on Instagram, at She Loves Radically on TikTok, and SheLovesRadically.com is my website. All right. Well, again, thank you, Heidi, so much for joining us. We, we really enjoyed this and I cannot wait to see everybody's reactions on the Discord. And uh, don't forget, you guys, we're going to be leaving links to all of the things and places and websites and classes, et cetera, and so forth at all in the description for this podcast. And we will also be making sure that, you know, as we did the other couple of weeks ago now, we will be linking you to Heidi through our Discord in the Spicier Than Therapy channel. So uh, with that said, Heidi, thank you. And my dear, dear listeners, be sure to give yourself grace, love, and patience. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. And as always, go out and do some dope shit. Thanks for having me. It's been amazing. And I just want to give a little hello to all your listeners. And so excited to be here. Thank you both. <laughs>